performed behind from uh, lots of people in our own church family there who are enjoying a weekend away. We've been having a great time, uh, encouraged from God's word by Andy Robinson. We've been thinking about what it looks like to be courageous communities, following Jesus, standing out in our world uh, as we seek to live this world. I think those talks have been recorded, so if you're interested in getting hold of them, then come and find me and I'll try and figure out a way to get them to you. Um, some some of you have asked me why I'm here this morning. <laughs> I've travelled back from, from Quinta to be here. Um, and it just it's just to say, um, what we do as a church family on Sunday mornings, gathering together on the first day of the week to worship Jesus, is the most important thing in our life as a church, <laughs> whether there's many of us or few of us. And um, so it's an expression of our love and commitment, of my love and commitment to you, that I want to be here to gather with you, even though uh, lots of other people are away. Uh, so that's all That's all it is. Um, this morning we, we are, though, we're going to take a, a little bit of a break from our Luke series. So if you've been with us, we've been looking at Luke's Gospel. We're going to go back into that next week. Uh, but just for one week, while lots of people are away, we're going to do something a little bit different. But I hope that in lots of ways, it will still fit in with what we've been looking at in Luke's Gospel. So if you remember um, chapter 1, verse 1 of Luke, this is how he introduces his Gospel. He says that what he's written is an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled. The things that have been fulfilled. It's one of the big themes of Luke. He is constantly alluding to or quoting from the Old Testament, showing us how those Old Testament promises made hundreds of years ago, which look forward to the coming of Jesus, are fulfilled in him. So what I thought we would do this morning is look at one of those passages in a bit more detail, one of those predictions, those portraits of Jesus in the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 42. So if you'll, uh, if you'll keep that open before we, that'll help you. Page 728 in these Blue Church Bibles. Let's pray and then we'll look at Isaiah 42 together. Father, we thank you so much that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. That you always do what you say you will do. And so we thank you for this ancient promise of Jesus And we pray that as we look at it together and see how it's been fulfilled in him, please would you speak to us and by your spirit would you help us to delight in your servant Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, As as we join the story of Isaiah in chapter 42, something big is about to happen. The first half of Isaiah, which runs up to chapter 39, in basically that whole first half, God is warning his people Israel that they are going to be taken into exile as slaves into a country called Babylon. It's an expression of God's judgment on them for their sin. But in chapter 40, there's the turning point and God announces that not only is he going to send them into exile, but he's going to bring them back from exile. He's going to bring them home. He's going to restore them as his people. But what we get in chapter 40, it's like the trailer before the movie. So we've seen some snippets, but we don't know much about what that's going to look like or how it's going to happen. We know something big is happening, but we don't know the details until now. 
We get to chapter 42 and, and the Lord tells us how he's going to bring his people home, how he's going to restore his people to himself. Uh, you might like to think of this moment a little bit like the launch of Windows 95. Now, I know that some of you here are not old enough to remember Windows 95, but uh, Windows 95, it's hugely significant. It was basically like the first home operating system for computers. Windows 95 was what brought computers into people's living rooms and ordinary homes. And the Microsoft team who developed Windows 95 were so excited about its launch that when they launched it, this is what they did. And I'm going to, and hopefully it'll work. One more. Here it is. They did a dance in front of the whole audience at that launch event. Uh, if you watch the whole thing, it's quite a long video. It's great entertainment. Who knew that five computer Greeks doing some dad dancing would be so entertaining? But it is. They danced because they are absolutely delighted about their new product. And you would have been dancing too if you knew how much money it made them. That's a little bit like what's going on here, except with less awkward dad dancing. We've had a, a big media build-up. We've had a, a bit of a pre-release trailer. And now the crowds have gathered. There's a sense of anticipation and excitement in the air. The lights dim. A hush descends over the people. And then the moment arrives. It's as if God walks onto the stage parts the curtains, pulls the cover off, turns the lights on, and announces, verse 1, Behold my servant. Behold my servant. Just like Bill Gates and his pals at the launch of Windows 95, when God the Father presents us with his servant, he is absolutely delighted with him. He's ecstatic, over the moon with who he's presenting to us. And this morning, God is inviting us to share in that same delight that he has for his servant. That's the first thing we see this morning. We're going to spend most of our time uh, on this first one. Delight in the servant who brings justice. Verses 1 to 4. Delight in the servant who brings justice. As God reveals his servant to us, he's a bit like a child at Christmas. So excited, just thrilled with the present that he's opened. He wants to tell the whole world. He wants everyone to know how brilliant his servant is, how wonderful he is to share in his overflowing delight. Because unlike the idols of, of chapter 41, Jesus is not detestable. He is delightful. And so it's as if God says to us, hey, you, you over there, have you seen my servant? Have you seen how wonderful he is? Have you seen how delightful he is? Now, those words about Jesus in verse 1, they find their fulfillment in Jesus' baptism, which we looked at a few weeks ago in Luke's Gospel. Jesus is the chosen one of God, delighted in, anointed by the Spirit. And in Christ, we ourselves are invited to share in that. 
being delighted in by the Father as sons, and also joining in with the Father's loving delight and adoration of his Son. And the Father, he invites us to to celebrate his Son, first of all, by speaking to us. That's what he's doing in verses 1 to 4. He's speaking to us about his servant, telling us what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And what Jesus is going to do is bring justice. We know that because three times in the first four verses, we're told that is Jesus' mission. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. We love that word justice, don't we? Because there is so much injustice in our world. But this idea of justice, it's more than just legal correctness. It is that, but it's much wider than that. This word, it describes everything that's wrong in our world being put right. Everything that's been ruined being restored. Everything that's been broken being mended. If you know Lord of the Rings, that moment at the end where Sam Ganji says to Gandalf, is everything sad coming untrue? That's what it is when Jesus brings justice. Justice includes all our longings for a better life and a better world without poverty or misery, without people trampling on each other or using other people. Justice is a world of healing and wholeness, of perfect peace, of glorious love, of abounding generosity, of restored relationships. This is Jesus reordering our broken human civilization in the most glorious and beautiful way. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be truly whole. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be finally free from all those things that weigh you down in life? Can you imagine what it would feel like to be finally at home, to be included without suspicion, to be embraced without reservation? That's justice. This is about God's blueprint for human flourishing being established on earth. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God made us and he loves us. And so he knows how we can be happy and fulfilled. And his kingdom of justice establishes our human existence as it was meant to be. So that we can flourish. Jesus will bring justice. But his strategy for doing that is, I think at least to most of us, a surprising one. Because Jesus establishes and brings people into this new world, not through forcefulness, but through gentleness. And it's worth asking, isn't it, how on earth is that a winning approach? In our world, no one has ever really ever accomplished anything 
through gentleness, only through forcefulness. See, rulers in our world, when they want to bring their own versions of so-called justice, they are like Cyrus. In this part of Isaiah, there are actually three different servants. And the other two, Cyrus is the first and Israel is the other, they're often portrayed in contrast to Jesus. So Isaiah, he predicts the rise of this ruler, Cyrus the Great. He turned up on the scene about 150 years after Isaiah wrote these words, and yet Isaiah prophesied his coming and his rise to power. He isn't named until chapter 45, but we first meet Cyrus in chapter 41. Cyrus is the one who the Lord has stirred up from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service. God hands nations over to him, subdues kings before him. He, that's Cyrus, he turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. Isaiah continues, he treads on rulers as as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading out the clay. That guy Cyrus, he was the king of Persia. He rose up and conquered the Medes, and then he conquered the Babylonians, which is where Israel were in exile. He had a meteoric rise to power. Cyrus conquered everyone and everything in his way. Now, it's clear God is in charge of his story, and God is even going to use Cyrus to accomplish his own purposes to bring his people back from exile in Babylon. But here's the thing about Cyrus. He stepped on people. He stepped on people. To achieve his ends, Cyrus trampled everyone and everything in his way. That is how the rulers of this world always work. They step on people. But Jesus is not like that. He brings justice not through forcefulness, but through gentleness. He doesn't beat the bullies by becoming a bigger bully. He brings justice, not with a sword, but by the spirit. His is a quiet revolution, a gentle power, a tender strength. But when Jesus swept through the world bringing justice, there's no collateral damage because no one is disposable to him. So Jesus is not pushy or demanding, calling people to do things that he knows they can't do that will break them. He doesn't pressure people to do things his way. He doesn't guilt trip them to get them on. He is gentle and lowly. Jesus is not a tyrant. He is a servant, truly. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. They're beautiful pictures, aren't they? There's a whole book, actually, on just that first one, the first picture of The Bruised Reed by Richard Tibbs. It's a brilliant book. You're welcome to borrow it from me if you like. But the thing is, that's us, isn't it? Bruised reeds battered and broken by life in this broken world. Some days it may feel as if you're barely hanging on. 
And the thing you need to know about Jesus is that when you're in that place, Jesus will not break you. Jesus deals gently and tenderly with us to restore the broken. The other picture, the smoldering wick. You know there's that moment when you blow out a candle and for a brief second, there's a glimmer of red spark at the end before it dies. And that's gone. That's us. The smoldering wick barely burning. But again, when you're in that place, Jesus won't snuff you out. Jesus still gently and tenderly with his people to rekindle us. If you know that that's you, then Jesus' ministry is for you. See, this is a servant that you can trust with your weakness, your bruises, your failures, your hurts. He invites us to come to him. To come to him with our failure and our despair and our exhaustion, knowing that he will handle us carefully, tenderly, gently. Jesus will not speak harshly to you, despising your weakness, tutting at you as if you should have done better. And Jesus knows that about us. He doesn't recruit us into his team because he needs our strength. Jesus does not only recruit those people who are on fire. No, no, no. He welcomes the bruised and the broken and the poor and the burnt out. Jesus knows that we bring to him nothing but our need. And he's fine with that. He just doesn't want us to pretend. Because our weakness is a perfect fit for his gentle strength. See, even though Jesus ministers to the bruised and the broken and the faint-hearted, he is none of those things. Verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. Jesus is not discouraged. He's not put off. He doesn't wake up and think, oh, tough day. Jesus never has days like that. He is not put off by you or by his task. If you come to Jesus today with all of your need, asking yet again for the hundredth time for his help, he isn't looking for a way out. He's not rolling his eyes and saying, you again. Get it together, man. Give me a break. Jesus never, ever, ever says that. Jesus is not tired. And he is not tired of you. He's not discouraged by his task. He's not running out of resources or running out of ideas. He is totally up to the task. Verse 3, in faithfulness, that is, successfully. He will bring forth justice. Jesus will succeed where everyone else has failed. And we need him to, don't we? For, because for all our own human efforts to achieve justice, we have made very little progress. 
We abolished the transatlantic slave trade in 1807 only for it to be replaced by others. I saw a news story the other day that there are more slaves today than at any other point in human history. The mess that we have made of human civilization is so overwhelming, so ingrained, so systemic, so entrenched, so serious, it is beyond our powers of correction. Now, of course, we ought to work for a better society. We want to do all the good we can in this broken world. But my friends, we have to have the humility to face the facts. Humanity is not getting better. Injustice and oppression plague every society, including, perhaps even including, the most developed. Our remedies always fall short. And they always introduce more mess, even if we don't mean it to. Salvation will never come from our self-assertion. But Jesus will succeed perfectly. He will bring forth justice. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as in heaven. And Jesus, the faithful servant of the Lord, will see to it. And we see that fulfilled in the Gospels. So at one point in Matthew chapter 12, and Matthew actually quotes from, from this passage in Isaiah. I'd love you to turn with me. If you've got your Bible open, turn with me. Uh, page 977, Matthew chapter 12. Let me read from, from verse 9. Going on from that place, Jesus went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. His hand was not experiencing justice, not experiencing wholeness. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful, i.e. is it just to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is the person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful, it is just to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored. His hand experienced justice. Just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold. See, that story in Matthew 12 is about justice. Healing, wholeness, restoration. And, and that story, it's a preview, it's a trailer of what the whole world will be like when Jesus comes back. He will bring forth justice. But please notice, Jesus does not engage in a big loud culture war to get there. Unlike so many People today, Jesus does not have a big advertising campaign to raise his profile. He is not pushy. He does not make a big deal. He does not sing or dance about it. Jesus healed people. He brought justice. And he was quiet about it. 
Jesus gave suffering people their lives back, but he never, ever used his success to make something of himself or to take advantage of other people. With Jesus, there is zero swagger. No self-interested grasping, using other people to get what he wants. No, no, no. He is modest, gentle, tender. What a privilege to belong to someone like that. Delight in a servant who brings justice. And secondly, trust in the servant who brings freedom. Verses 5 to 9, trust in a servant who brings freedom. In verses 1 to 4, God speaks to us about his servant. But in verses 5 to 9, it switches around. Now he speaks to his servant about us. And we get to listen in. Because the, the father, he has a special job for his son, for his servant. Words that reflect the passage we looked at last week in Isaiah 61, if you were here. Verse 7, Jesus has come to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Without Jesus, that is where we are. Blind, stuck in the darkness and unable to free ourselves. It's a picture of what it means to be in spiritual exile from God. And that's where we all are apart from Jesus because all of us by nature, we look to things other than the true and living God for our comfort and satisfaction. And often we look to things that in and on themselves are good things. We look to friends or family or finances or food or phones or football and they provide us with a short-term measure of what we're looking for. But what all of us do is we take those good things and we make them God things. We make them the ultimate source of our comfort and satisfaction. We idolize them. And when we do that, it is a big problem. It's a big problem, first of all, because it tends to break the things we're using. They were not made to carry the weight of our existence. If your children become your reason for living, you will crush them. Uh, but secondly, it dishonors the true and living God. He alone can be the source of our comfort and satisfaction, and he longs to be that for us. And we turn away from him and reject him to go to stuff that can't even do it. It dishonors him. And that leaves us restless and trapped. Because those things we look to, they can't deliver us. They, they can't deliver what we're looking for. But they do deceive us. We believe that they can. If only we give ourselves more and more and more to them. See, all of us, we've turned away from God to those other things. And so we find ourselves of our own making in the dark dungeon of spiritual exile away from him. But the Lord Jesus, who is the one, the only one, who shares the Father's divine name and glory and praise, he came to take us out of that place through his death and resurrection to bring us home to God. 
Jesus came to open our eyes so that we would no longer be blind to our sin, but have eyes to see the foolishness of what we're trusting in, of our idolatry. So that we would no longer be blind to his glory, but have eyes to see the wonder of his goodness and grace. So that we would trust him. Jesus came to free us from the prison of our sin, to release you from the dark dungeon of Satan's dominion so that we would no longer be enslaved to things that cannot even give us life. And so through Jesus, the whole world, even people who live in the furthest islands, are invited in to covenant relationship with God the God who gives us life and breath and everything. Here's the thing. Today, you can know God like that. Not just as a powerful creator, distant, but as a loving father. In Christ, you can experience the Father's joyful delight over you. By his spirit, you can know the security of your present and your future. And you can know that God is totally dependable and trustworthy to do all of those things because he has kept every promise he has ever made. That's what verse 9 is about. He's kept his word about the former things. He told us about Cyrus 150 years before he was even born. Told us about Cyrus coming and bringing them home from exile. And it happened just as he said. And so we can trust God's promise to us that he will bring us home through his servant Jesus. He's kept his word about the coming of Jesus, bringing God's kingdom of justice to this world. It happened just as he said. So we can trust his promise that one day Jesus will come again, just as he's promised, when his kingdom will be fully established here. When justice will reign, trust in the servant who brings freedom. And lastly, and very briefly, sing of the servant who brings salvation. It's normal, isn't it? You get to a passage, you get to the end of a passage like Isaiah 42, and of course it calls for singing. (laughs) How else could we respond? If you've ever wondered why Christians spend so much time singing, it is because of this. Like football fans celebrate their team winning, Christians sing to celebrate all that God has done for us. It matters way more than a football match. Because Jesus has saved us. He's opened our eyes. He's set us free. He's forgiven our sin. He's brought us into relationship with God. He's promised us a home in his kingdom of justice. That's why we sing and praise him. And God wants the whole world to do that. He invites the whole world to know what Jesus has done. God invites the whole world to delight in and trust in and sing about his servant Jesus. That's why what we do here on Sundays is open to anyone and everyone. Because we want the whole world to come and delight in Jesus. And we see that being fulfilled even today. I told you at the start, what we do as a church family today is the most important thing in the life of our church family. It goes way further than anything else we could ever think of doing. Because all over the world today, people are doing the same thing. 
gathering together as church families to worship Jesus and sing to him of all he's done, inviting people to know him. That is what we're doing. That's the best and most amazing thing in the whole world. And Jesus and, and God invites everyone to do that. People to come and sing and proclaim his praise. Because we share in the Father's delight in his Son who brings justice. We trust in the one who has given us freedom. And so we sing of the servant who brings salvation. We're going to do that now. Let's stand and sing together and the band are going to lead us.